and welcome to another episode of Shadow Talk, your weekly cybersecurity news and threat intelligence podcast brought to you by members of the ReliQuest threat research team. My name is Corey, and I'll be your host today. I'm also joined in the Tampa office for once by two of my amazing colleagues. I feel like normally we're spread across North America and Europe, so it's great that we're all around the same for table. Real. So first and foremost, we have one of our CISOs, Rick Holland. How are you doing today, Rick? Good. I'm glad to be with y'all. It's, uh, it's great. It's so much better when you're in person. Absolutely. I'm glad to have you here as well. And we're also joined by a former threat hunter who has recently transitioned over to our security architect department. Georgie, how are you doing today, Georgie? All good. It's uh, good to be here in person, man. Yeah, it's great, man. And glad to have you here as well. All right. So real quick, let's highlight the topics that we're going to be discussing today. We're going to start by covering a threat spotlight report where we observed a threat actor using a technique known as bring your own vulnerable driver. Then we're going to transition to... We just surpassed, actually, the two-year anniversary of the Log4j vulnerability. That's crazy. I, I know. Like, Log4Shell, if you were in the security world two years ago, like, there is no way you haven't heard about Log4Shell. So we're definitely going to go into what we're still seeing two years later, if that goes to tell you anything. Well, Java is everywhere, so... Yeah. And uh, all right. After that, we're going to be discussing AlphaV's ransomware group's data leak site outage. And then we're going to end on a somewhat controversial topic where cyber victims who are, are publicly traded companies can now request to delay reporting material incidents to the SEC under certain requirements, of course. Yes. All right, well, let's get into it. So our first topic is a threat spotlight report scheduled to be released next week where we discuss a technique known as bring your own vulnerable driver. So one of our threat hunters breaks down how a signed driver assisted a threat actor in bypassing security solutions on a host and what some of the repercussions of that ultimately ended up being. Now, Georgie, can you outline some more of what is covered in the report and what it was exactly that we observed? Yeah, um, the report is very detailed, so I will not go into the weeds. But the interesting part here and the reason why we're doing the spotlight is there was a bring your own vulnerable drive event that it was a first first time seen, at least for the vulnerability that was observed. During the investigation, uh, an application called um, SIU user server.xl was observed being abused. So this application is part of Palo Alto Network's traps, right? Uh, the traps application or the Palo Alto Network's utility tool here, it's the their advanced endpoint protection. So the way it was abused was um, the threat actor brought this application into the environment and utilized it to sideload a DLL that was not native and it was not signed. So what that does, it's basically um, allow them to run code without restrictions. Uh, the malicious payload in this case was put in the directory where the application was going to look for the original uh, DLL, which is like part of how applications work and they need all those dependencies. Given that uh, this was a vulnerable application, it loaded the DLL without having checks. And that allowed them to basically get persistence and eventually establish a C2 COBOL strike beacon on that endpoint. The vulnerability was disclosed to Palo Alto security team as soon as we figured out during the investigation. Uh, but this is one of those concepts where anything that is a known software doesn't necessarily mean that it's safe. Although it could be a signed signature, if it's vulnerable to 
you know, exploits in any sense or form, then it can be utilized like this to get persistence and privileges. Yeah, that's kind of something we preach in training is just because you run a search on a hash and it comes back as signed doesn't mean that the activity was non-malicious. Like there's things called law bins out there, which is living off the land, binary scripts. And uh, they are used for many different purposes, some for C2, some for like DLL sideloading. And threat actors, they're able to essentially reverse engineer how these processes work and you know, figure out like where they can inject a piece in the chain to kind of like take over the execution of correct, it. Correct, correct. And this uh, this is not like low level activity. This is like high level threat actors. Yeah, and I seem to remember from the report that a a driver was used to unhook some of the security solutions, and it kind of triggered like a visibility gap because the uh, you know once the security solution was yes. unhooked, it, it kind of yes. stops reporting it, in. It was basically. Um, this DLL was actually utilized, and the beautiful thing is EDRs usually hook into uh, the kernel. Mm-hmm. So for you to have an EDR not report on what's going on, you have to unhook it. So they basically disabled the other EDR that was in the environment. Yeah. Now, I know this is um, the bring-your-own-vulnerable-driver technique is actually right. under MITRE uh, T1543.003. And it's create or modify system process Windows service. But was the way that we observed it being abused novel? Or have we seen that in other technical reports or with ourselves? So the way being abused was not novel. But for us, this was the first, especially since uh, this application was not one that we were expecting it to be uh, exploited this way. It's usually like old sound drivers or like other applications that Windows has from like Windows 7 and, you know, back in Windows 8 and all that times, but not an EDR or something that would be from a security tool. So this was the the new thing Mm -hmm. and the, (laughs) I would say, guts to utilize one of those tools means that these guys knew what they were doing. They had their research and they understood how everything worked. Yeah, no, it definitely seemed like a, a sophisticated actor was behind this for sure. Now, what do listeners need to do to pr- protect themselves from these threats? Yes, we actually had uh, a blog a long time ago in January 2023 talking about this uh, specific exploit version or like bring your own vulnerable drive. The mitigation, it usually requires the security teams to follow the Microsoft recommended driver block rules. They have a list of all the drivers that they should uh, default block or know about. Uh, so if those drivers are introduced in their environment, they should like have an alert and go and investigate it. Uh, there is also recommended to have the hypervisor protected code integ- integrity uh, enabled. And Windows 11 users can leverage the Windows 11 2022 update, which I think everybody should be up to date by now, uh, which by default it blocks all vulnerable drivers that Microsoft knows. So Microsoft has like a, their own directory of drivers that they know about vulnerabilities that they were being reported, and they keep adding those to this list. Great. Appreciate that. Yeah, definitely seems essential. Definitely get those enabled if you don't have them already. Especially if you don't have Windows 11, you would need to be very wary of uh, what's going on in your environment. 
All right, well, let's go ahead and move on to that second topic. So it's been two years since the Log4j vulnerability was released. Now, this was aptly dubbed Log4Shell, and it was a vulnerability that allowed a threat actor to send a specially crafted request to a vulnerable server running this Log4j software. And what it would do is trick the Log4j application to think that it needed to download an external resource. Now this download would typically occur over the LDAP protocol. And once, and as you can imagine, the download is going to be from a threat actor owned server. So once that download occurred, the application would essentially run it and then ultimately is going to result in that remote code execution that we consistently talk about and are mostly concerned about. Now, what was interesting is some recent research from Sonatype, which is a software supply chain management solution, and they monitor a repository known as the Maven Century repository, and that stores components that aid in Java development. They discovered that 26% of Log4j library downloads are still vulnerable versions. So, Georgie, what are some of the difficulties that are preventing Log4j libraries from being patched in software? Well, inventory is number one. You have to know what you have to be able to patch it. Then there's a lot of third-party services that you don't have control over that are running. Java is running That's a big on, one. what, 8 billion devices or more? So you would, you would expect anything that needs Java that is running, that's likely not managed or monitored, it's not updated. Yeah, and um, something else I found interesting while researching this topic is there's still active exploitation taking place. So it seems like the main risks here are from threat actors in North Korea, like most notably Lazarus Group. And Cisco Talus is actually tracking this campaign, this increase, as Operation Blacksmith. And they suggest that the data collected from Lazarus's 9-ret malware is being shared with other APT groups. So they came to this conclusion for a little bit more context because the data that's being collected from victims is sent to a separate repository than, the, than where Lazarus tooling is actually being pulled from. So... This goes to the both of you. Now, if they are sharing this with other APT groups, like what do you think some of the, like what do you think, like why? Like is that financial? Is it trying to build better relationships? Any any hypothetical guesses? I'll let Rick go first. Well, I mean, we know Lazarus is heavily motivated from the financial angle. So I, I would say anything as far as their tasking um, and operations is, is going to have a financial angle to it because it's how they bypass sanctions and, and fund the regime there. So there's got to be some kind of profit to them some way, either relationships um, with other groups, uh, but, you know, financially motivated from my perspective. Okay. Yeah, I think the, the beautiful thing about this is um, I'm surprised people are surprised about it. It's It works. It's everywhere. And it's still vulnerable. So, of course, they're going to use it. Now, them collaborating with other APT groups... It's just partnership. They're likely trying to figure out if they're selling the correct data to the correct groups, would they get a cut? They are a small team, I'm assuming, mm -hmm. and therefore they would need all the assistance if they want to be like big monetary, uh, you know. So I, I believe they're trying to put themselves on that uh, threat actor spectrum where they're like, yeah, we're not separated anymore. We can work together as long as it's profitable. And that's not, you know, just threat actors in cyber, uh, you know, criminals everywhere do the same thing. So Yeah, no, absolutely. 
And, and for our listeners out there, like what you need to be doing right now is vulnerability scanning your environment. Start from the outside, work your way in. You're going to want to hit those critical RC vulnerabilities first. And what you need to do especially is if you identify a vulnerable endpoint that is susceptible to this RCE and you have software that's running it, and it's, the, it's patched, like it's it's in its most up-to-date version and it's still vulnerable, we need to start holding the uh, developers a little bit more accountable. So obviously Apache is going to fix the log4j vulnerability, and then that is going to trickle down to developers who have already been using that library in their code. Like they're going to need to make updates there, and that's going to have that trickle-down effect into all the end users. So we really need to start pushing back a little bit more on some of these developers to get the software updated. Because obviously a lot of the times software is created, and then maybe developers favor it to another project, or their software gets incorporated into another company, and they aren't working on that anymore. So it, no one's really sure of like all the dependencies and all the updates that need to occur so definitely look into that and uh yeah let's go ahead and move on to our next topic let me let me add a couple oh, things um on there one it's not surprising that it's two years i remember exactly where i was sitting on a friday morning um after this started in asia and started making its way um uh west but uh, a couple things i'm not surprised by the duration i mean we see vulnerabilities that are exploited that are even older than two years that are out there. It speaks to the complexity of a library, uh, open source library that's used everywhere. Um, also, part of this is, I mean, Log4j was actually driving software composition analysis and then the security or the software bill of materials. Um, and I know SBOMs are a pretty hot topic and uh, a lot of pros and cons and people have some pretty strong positions on it, but it, it goes back to under, you, you do need to know what software you have in your applications, what libraries are being used so that when they become abused, you're aware of it and then you can put something in place. So it, it's a big visibility problem that we have for anything you're developing and then for the third party component um, and, you know, any apps that are Java and, and understanding if what libraries are in there and Log4j is just one example. There's, you know, plenty of vulnerable libraries that get exploited over the years. So it, it, it it really does speak to we got to understand our assets and the applications and libraries that those assets are using. That's never easy. Asset management is the, the hardest thing they can figure it out. I mean, we can't even do asset management on laptops uh, very well, um, right? And we always talk about agents not being on endpoints uh, for EDR perspective. And now we're talking about applications. And I mm -hmm. would say trying to understand your application attack surface is more challenging than yeah. understanding the attack surfaces yeah. of devices that you own. Right, that you deploy and manage. So it is a tough thing for sure. Yeah, the, the right solution. Sorry, the right solution would be secure coding, but that's harder too. It, it requires a lot of education. It requires fundamentals. Like, not everybody's gonna do it, and it's extra work. It's about thirty percent harder to do actually. Yeah, hopefully there's some. You know, as we kind of progress through AI, we can have some more vulnerability scans prior to code getting publicly released. So that's something I'm excited to see with AI. And also you're talking about when you where you were and where you first like heard about this log4j vulnerability. And I, I seem to remember that it was something to do with like Minecraft because that's like uh, yes. they were Minecraft servers yes. getting exploited. And yeah. it just goes to show that, you know, maybe it was someone kind of low level just interested in exploiting some Minecraft servers and then how this turned into some global incident. So it's it's always interesting to try to look back and see. It was the see. right storm. I mean, 
the exploit was made public. And then everybody was like, huh, this is easy. It's everywhere and nobody can stop us. I don't see why not. It didn't explode like that. So, yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's let's wrap that one up and we'll go ahead and move on to our next topic. So last week on December 7th, the data leak website for the ransomware group Alpha V, also known as Black Cat, went offline. As of today, December 13th is when we're recording this. There is some front end functionality that's been restored, but it doesn't look like the victim data is able to be retrieved from the website currently. Now, since its creation in November of 2021, Alfi has listed over 650 companies on its data leak site, and it's definitely been established as one of the most active data leak sites today. So once again, like as of our recording on Wednesday, we're still not aware of the full details or the cause of the takedown. But some interesting insights that we've received from X, formerly known as Twitter, interested to know when we can stop saying that. <laughs> so there's been several posts by the cyber threat intelligence company RedSense, and they were able to, well, they stated that they could confirm that it was law enforcement that took down Alpha V's site. And they also went on to add in a couple more tweets that threat actors, including Black Cat affiliates, initial and access brokers, are convinced that the shutdown is caused by law enforcement actions. And that's specifically coming from admins and affiliates associated with Royal, Black Suit, Black Basta, Lockbit, and Akira. Now, on the other end, there's All been friends. yeah. On the other end, there's been posts from X or on X from VX Underground, and this was on December 11th. They stated that an Alpha V administrator said that they were experiencing hardware failure issues on the server, which was the cause of the outage. And they also go on to mention that they haven't heard any credible rumors of servers being seized or you know actors being arrested. So, Rick, we previously reported Alpha V as a third most active ransomware group. If this is a takedown, what do you think this is going to signify? Well, generally speaking... The reason I pause a little bit because I think I say I've said on the podcast before, cybercrime finds a way. This will just be a disruption. I mean, from a law enforcement or intelligence agency perspective, you know, you want to be able to disrupt, deny, degrade, destroy in military terms, like the threat actors. Um, so there's several thoughts that I have on this. There's always conjecture when these types of things happen, be it on a marketplace, on a forum, on a leak site like this. Um, even there's been circumstances, even where it has been a law enforcement, uh, takedown admins have said it was infrastructure related. Um, I've seen that more on the marketplaces where maybe they're trying to cash out and, and do exit scams on people that are there. And then I, you'll have to forgive me because I can't remember if it was when raid forms was taken down or the first time or Breach Forums is back, but when Breach Forums was taken down, but one of those two forums was taken down and offline. It was a month before law enforcement came out and said that they had taken it down. So they may have been conducting other operations in that window. So it, I'd say at this point, there's a lot of conjecture um, as to what it is. And, and it's also possible that someone has a backup of it. And even if they disrupt and take down this one, yeah. or even if they arrest members of the group, that someone else may be able to stand up that infrastructure again. So I think for us as defenders, it probably doesn't change much of how we operate. It could be interesting if you're in the midst of negotiations when this has gone down and what is that going to mean? Uh, that's probably the people that are most concerned about this if they were, were, were talking to the group and they've now gone offline. So I think time will tell, um, but I, I would be hesitant to, to take, what a company or the forums and marketplaces say um, and confirm as fact. 
Not yeah. On the other side, I think that their product is stolen data if we're talking economic form, right? So I don't think it's all in one place. So they're still going to be able to have those bargaining chips as with whoever the victim is uh, in this case. And hey, if they cannot post it online, they'll post in the dark web. They'll sell it somewhere else. Um, yeah, I mean, they usually, like Rick was saying, they're hard to take down because they're like Hydra. You cut one head and the yeah, other one shows yeah. up. It's like a never-ending game of whack-a-mole. So, yeah, uh, until we know for sure, they're still there. Now, one, one other quick thing, Corey, yeah, I would course. say is we do know uh, from us even just downloading data from these sites. They're inf- they have IT problems. I, I, in fact, I've joked about it in podcasts over the years. They have IT problems just like, you know, defenders have IT problems. Like, remember, this is a business. And so maintaining their infrastructure can be problematic. Trying to do downloads off Onion sites in particular yeah. is, you know, it, you know for, for those that use modems like I did back in the day, like you'd almost finish a download and then the modem would disconnect and you'd have to restart over. That's very synonymous with trying to download, you know, data dumps from the Onion sites that are out there. So it is plausible that there could be infrastructure problems for sure. Um, I think it's more likely that it's a law enforcement action or, um, you know, an intelligence agency cyber command and cyber command has said they were going to go after, you know, for, for several years now that they would go after threat actors as well. Yeah. I guess at the end of the day, it's only time's going to tell because we have to imagine if it is law enforcement that they're going to want some credit, of course. I mean, it seems like a win in the, in the, in the blue team side, like the, the victim side, if the site does get taken down and it does raise a question like, well, why, if it is law enforcement, hasn't it come out yet and obviously we can imagine that maybe there's more to come they're so cut, they're cutting all the heads if it's law enforcement they found one they got in now they're trying to figure out everything else and they have to take everybody down because they can't say hey we took them down and then somebody posts the things that they yeah. uh, I'll, I'll give another example and this was um known as operation Banette, um and this was probably i won't have the years right but four or five six years ago that range but when alpha bay uh, was taken offline. We didn't know what happened to Alpha Bay. All of the, and this was an English language um, market, all of the users of Alpha Bay went to another English language market called Hansa for one month. And then an international law enforcement effort uh, then announced that they had taken it down. And basically what happened is they took Alpha Bay down, everybody went to Hansa. Uh, Dutch National Police already owned Hansa, so they were collecting intel over that month. <laughs> Love it. So when you see these, po- it's actually a great. The Wired magazine has done an article on it. It's a really good read. So Operation Banette. So I think if, if if law enforcement is in fact behind it, to your point, Georgie, they're doing other activities to collect more intelligence, to get you know to maybe prep for arrests, whatever the case may be. So I think time will tell um, what happens here. But for defenders, it's a good thing. Um, that they've been disrupted, and um, hopefully uh, it's more than just a disruption. Yeah, definitely concur there. So for listeners out there that are interested in this, we did release a blog that covers the Alfie site outage in more detail. So definitely go on our website and check that out. And all right, let's go ahead and transition to our last topic of the day. So publicly traded companies who are victims of cyber attacks can now request to delay public disclosures to the Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC. So for those that were unaware, the SEC is mandating that publicly traded companies are required to publicly disclose material cybersecurity incidents within four days 
of them making that material determination. Now, this guidance was actually released in July of this year, and coincidentally, it goes into effect next Monday, 18th. December 18th, so be prepared. Now, the FBI, in coordination with the Department of Justice, recently provided some additional guidance on how victims can request to delay those public disclosures for a maximum period of up to 120 days. Now, this does hinge on the public disclosure could impact national security or public safety. And real quick to help clarify what material means, information is considered material when there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable investor would attach importance in determining whether to purchase the security registered. Now, real quick, Rick, like going back to our previous topic of Alpha V, like I know they also recently made headlines because they filed a formal complaint with the SEC <laughs> alleging that their victim failed to comply with these new disclosure regulations. It's, it's hilarious. I love it. Yeah. So do you think that the disclosure delay process is going to matter when these ransomware groups can essentially put companies on blast? Yeah, it's certainly uh, an unintended uh, route for disclosure. Um, with that particular incident, they, they they didn't realize that December 18th was the go-live date on mm-hmm. it, so they jumped the gun um, there. Yeah, it certainly blows up your disclosure plan if the threat actor is going to say it publicly first. And, of course, they do this to apply pressure to get the victims to pay money. And actors have been doing this for years. They used to do it with Brian Krebs, actually. They would go to Brian Krebs and try to get Brian Krebs to write a story that they had stolen information um, there. So it is about the application of pressure to get their payment um, because, as we always say, it is a business. Uh, And I think the bigger – the 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 process has been established for doing these notifications through an FBI uh, group called SciWatch. It's just over probably a decade old now and is a bit of a communication uh, hub between the private sector and other arms of the government. So, in fact, within two hours of you notifying SciWatch, um, they're supposed to notify the attorney general and start the process. And the 120 days is actually only applicable if it's a national security event. Otherwise, it's 90 days. Um, so there's different levels that you can do. But to your to your original question, Corey, it doesn't matter if the threat actor discloses it uh, for you. And you know, one of our analysts many years ago said the threat groups were very monkey see, monkey do. And so I would expect that you know others, AlphaView continue this. Other threat groups would do the same thing from a disclosure perspective. The beautiful thing will be when a threat actor group that is not recognized by the community, that is that doesn't have their chops, they're not the top dog, starts doing this, and then it becomes one of those things where nobody will believe anyone because everybody can be like, yeah, this this person has been compromised by us, and people will make fun of them. Like, yeah, right, you know. You guys can't even hack anything. So so eventually it will become a disinformation campaign. But it is funny that the coincidence of the law changing and that happening at the same time. Yeah, it's it's pretty rare you see these threat groups using the law to their benefit. So uh, curious to see what happens in the future. They're very pragmatic people. Well, they're trying to make money. (laughs) Um, They're trying to make money. Um, And it's, I mean, the, the talk of the town in the CISO community, in fact, I was... With a, a public uh, company CISO just this week, and you know th- these SEC regulations have significant implications, and it could actually have more impact, um, you know, to the CISO's livelihood, you know, the materiality and things not getting disclosed. So it, you know, it's it's top of mind for public company CISOs for sure, and it just makes their jobs, you know, that much more difficult. Although some are also using this 
as a tool to try to move things through that they've been unable to do and say, hey, look, the SEC is saying they're going to come after me. Um, and hopefully uh, – that's my biggest – and I've said this before when we've discussed this guidelines. The biggest problem I have with the – there's two things, two things that are more macro than – because really what the FBI just released was the disclosure process, right? This is what you need to do. Um, and, you know, if you back up there, you have four days, and that's four days from when you determine a materiality. So the, the big open question there is what is materiality? You described it there, Corey, and that comes out of some, 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 some Supreme Court rulings. So I'm not a lawyer. Don't play one on TV. But you're going to need to work with inside counsel, outside counsel, privacy, um, your leadership team to determine what material is going to be uh, and make sure that that's vetted and well-documented so that you can – know what you need to do. I would contend that within four days, it, organizations are probably not going to know if something is material within four days. Um, and just like GDPR actually had a 72-hour notification period. Um, um, it was a shorter notification period. Um, but same thing, there was a little bit of time for people to understand that it's there. But materiality is the first bit. Notifications aren't going to come in four days. Um, and then you know, CISOs and their teams needing to document all the due diligence and things that they're do, trying to do to protect their program and, and make the right choices. Because a C, this is my final point, then I'll shut up and let y'all kind of get some no, more on it. Great. But going. CISOs, like, don't need to be the scapegoats for this. I've said this before, had this discussion this week with somebody in person. If something has gone wrong, it should be the CEO, the COO, the, the chief legal counsel, like the C, the SEC, maybe they're disconnected and don't understand the power that CISOs actually have. Um, it's like how it started, how it's going type of uh, uh, meme there because a lot of times the CISOs don't have the power to do the things that the SEC would want them to do. So following SolarWinds in particular, uh, and we had the same thing with GDPR. We wanted to see the first case in GDPR when there was fines and what happened. Everyone's going to watch SolarWinds very closely to kind of see, okay, here's a precedent, here's what they did, here's what they didn't do, and then go from there. So there's a lot of unknowns here. But at least the FBI guidance that came out helps people understand that there is a process to dis delay disclosure a little bit longer. Yeah, the legal process. And then, yeah, Rick is right. Uh, a lot of the CISOs have issues with budgeting, right? Like they have to figure out all the things they need, so they would have to send it up to their CEOs and everybody else on the board. And sometimes it's hard to convince. Yeah, we don't get all the things that we need. Yeah, it's hard to convince sometimes on all the technology and people that you need. And when something happens and they are not prepared because they're missing the technology or people, it would be one of those, you know, between a hard place and a rock. So a lot of the CISOs are in a difficult position. Uh, Rick is very right on that. So it's not necessarily a one-man issue. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a team sport. So everybody has to be involved. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, even on the web, uh, the FBI's website, they are recommending that you reach out to them and establish a relationship. Like, Rick, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but how well do most publicly traded companies like liaison with the FBI? Like, is that something where you might hop on consistent meetings with like quarterly or yearly? Or you just kind of give them a call and say, hey, I'm this company, I'm this point of contact, I'll let you know if something happens. There, I think we're in a much better spot. The FBI, probably of most government agencies, has done a better job with outreach 
to industry and InfraGuard has been one of those channels and there's local InfraGuard chapters there. Um, the field offices have designated um, agents that their job is community outreach. So building those relationships, I went to actually it was about this time last year in Dallas where it was in October, I think they had a, ch a chief information security officer and chief legal officer summit um, actually on the campus of Toyota financial in DFW. And they brought, agents in gave briefs and really were wanting to build relationships. So I don't think it causes anybody a problem to develop a relationship with law enforcement. There are certainly, and I've had this conversation just in the past two weeks, uh, discussions on what do you want to disclose to the FBI? And that's going to be a business decision. Uh, but it's better to have the relationship that you could then build upon and perhaps you make a decision to not disclose for some business reason, then something happens and you're trying to figure out who to talk to from scratch. You know, we have, of course, our, our relationship's a little bit different here, but, you know, we have monthly calls with the FBI and the NCA, with National Crime Agency in the UK. So we have a lot of you know, law enforcement partnership here at ReliaQuest, and we actually share intel and we get things back from law enforcement. It's been a very good relationship uh, for us. So, you know, people need to have the relationship. Um, the FBI actually has a CISO Academy. Uh, where they'll send CISOs from, uh, and basically they, the, the CISOs will get nominated from their regional field offices, and they'll send them to uh, Quantico for a week. Um, uh, my boss, Colonel Berger, he, he's actually gone through the, the academy just uh, like four months ago, something along those lines. So the FBI has done a good job of outreach. So if you don't know who your local field office folks are, talk to them. There'll be a cybercrime side of the house and there'll be a nation state side of the house. And depending on your threat model, you may want to be engaged with both. Um, InfraGuard is a good membership to have. Of course, InfraGuard has been had a database of members compromised as well. So they've been targeted too, but absolutely need to have a relationship with the FBI. Then you can determine how much you want to lean into that relationship. That's great feedback all around. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, I also didn't know about that CISO course that the FBI runs up in Quantico. So that's interesting. I've got a number of friends that have went. This is pretty fun. Yeah. No, absolutely. When are you going to go, Rick? Exactly. I don't know. I probably need to try to work it. You could probably schedule. teach it. <laughs> all right. Well, last question before we, we kind of wrap this up. With the, de or with the start date coming Monday, December 12th, or I'm sorry, December 18th, is there anything that, that you would recommend to companies to be doing now in preparation for that besides, you know, potentially contacting the FBI and getting that relationship considered? Well, I think these Form 8Ks that are disclosed on the SEC Edgar site are going to um, be a great source of third-party uh, breach notification. Um, and hopefully your customers would find out about a breach before you publicly disclose it in an 8K. That may not be the case. Um, so if you're interested or you have the capabilities, uh, there is an RSS feed for this. Um, uh, you could easily scrape uh, the RSS feed, uh, do matching against the vendors in your supply chain. Uh, there's also an API that they provide, although I haven't looked at the, the limitations on the scope of the API. Uh, but I would certainly be interested in doing collection on that site to know if my key suppliers are in there. So then I can start kicking off my own incident response plan and try to understand the scope of a supplier uh, being compromised. I think it's going to be big. And I was looking at it, was it this Monday or last Monday? I mean, there's lots that are going in. Now, the one thing, if you do start looking at those 8Ks, um, these are to report any type of material uh, change that could impact investors. So it's not just cyber incidents. So you're going to want to look at the keywords like cyber and breach and, and have that as you're trying to pull these things out. Um, but it's definitely going to be a good thing to, to have visibility into. Intelligence gathering, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. Collection's awesome. All right. Well, great pod today. So for our listeners out there, make sure to tune in next week where we will provide insights into our 2024 threat predictions. And that's going to help CISOs and threat intelligence professionals better understand where to assign resources in our ever-changing cyber threat landscape. So if you liked, the, if you liked what you heard today, please give us a like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again and hope you enjoy the rest of your week.